This is Authors in Focus. Welcome to the Authors in Focus podcast. Today we are joined by John Cronshaw, author of The Ravenglass Chronicles. How are you doing today, John? Yeah, I'm doing good. Yeah, just come off a big uh, marathon writing session. So, yeah, my head's pretty fried. <laughs> oh, the, those are always good. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. Kind of, it's, um, I can't say I've had one in a while, so I'm a little bit jealous, but uh, that's awesome. Um, so um, I like to start these interviews off with a couple of sort of fun questions before we get into the uh, bulk of the writing related stuff. Um, so my first question is, if you could have a drink with any author, living or dead, who would it be and why? Oh, wow. Um, unfortunately, the guy is dead, but one of my favorite authors of all time is Terry Pratchett. And oh, me too. I, I feel that he would be great fun to have a drink with. I think he'd just be full of great stories. And, um, you know, he, he's, a, he's a bit of a folklore geek, so uh, I'd, I'd love to just kind of pick his brains a bit. And, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to go for a beer with him for sure. Yeah, no, I, um, he's a huge influence of mine, um, in the realm of satirical writing in general. And, um, I always loved, uh, when I read a, when I read a Pratchett book and I've, I've got all of them sitting beautifully on my shelf. Um, there's so much underlying philosophy in the writing and it is, it's funny. Like his work is, is obviously very funny, but it's also really thought provoking and, and obviously very intelligent. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. Especially the, like the Tiffany Aiken novels, I think. You know, they're just really heartrending, to be honest. So, yeah. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm a big fan of the Vimes books. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Sam Vimes <laughs> is one of the best characters ever. So, yeah. I mean, I think that um, from uh, Feet of Clay on, they, it just gets they, they get so good. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, OK, cool. Good answer. I, uh, I would have loved to have met him as well. Um, another question, um, which I borrowed from other podcasts. <clears throat> that I do, but you know, I think it's a good question. I don't really like to use the word guilty pleasure when it comes to like media, like books and movies and TV and stuff, because I think, you know, there's just such a vast world of it and, you know, it's, it's there for everybody to enjoy. But if there was something that you were a fan of that a lot of people would be, sur- that knew you would be surprised about, what would that be? Um, probably professional wrestling. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So growing up, I used to love, professional wrestling um always wanted to go to wrestlemania and all that kind of stuff um i don't follow it as closely as i used to it's you know it's not as good as it once was you know i used to be into it back in the days when it was like uh stone cold steve austin and the rock and brett the hitman Hart and all that so yeah, yeah. I, I just kind of grew up loving that stuff yeah yeah no i was um <clears throat> when uh i remember as a kid my dad took me to wrestlemania when it came to uh uh toronto and and Obviously, I had a lot of the action figures and collected them and stuff like that. We actually just lost Scott Hall the other day. Yeah, yeah, Razor Ramon. Yeah, yeah I saw that. Was, that, was, uh, that was very sad. I mean, he'd, he'd obviously had demons for years and stuff. But, yeah, it's quite sad how that happened because that was yeah. like a hit replacement. Well, going wrong. He was a favorite. Well, it's, it's, it's just shocking to, um, if you want to you know, be humbled and depressed, if you just look up you know, <laughs> professional wrestlers that you grew up with and, uh, 80% of them are gone, and a lot of them, you know, way, oh, way too awful. early. And yeah, I rewatched. Um, it was last last year, actually, just after the lockdowns, uh, 
kind of got lifted. I watched, I think it was Royal Rumble 1990 with my friend. And it was like, oh man, he's dead. He's dead. He's dead. <laughs> it's like, it's just the yeah. funniest thing ever to watch. So, yeah. Yeah. The Ultimate Warrior was a really, uh, was a rough one for me. He was a favorite of mine. Yeah. Yeah. He, he did, um, like a really weird speech on, on Raw, on WWE Raw TV. Like, I think it was the night before he died. Where he it was. Being, uh, you know, taken away by the spirits. And it's like, oh. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, guilty pleasure there. Definitely. That was really intense. Um, anyway, John, I want to, uh, you know, talk to you. You've, um, you know, you've written a lot of books. You've written, um, you know, some of them being, you know, novellas that uh, make up a, a larger uh, collection and series. And you've just started writing uh, a series of novels. Um, first of all, let's start with when did you know you wanted to be a writer? Um, like where you got that buzz that you knew that that was something you wanted to do uh, with the rest of your life and, um, take us on a little bit of that journey that led to your decision to actually publish a book. Okay, I think they're they're two different questions, really. I think they I knew are. I want, yeah, <laughs> I think I knew I wanted to be a writer as as soon as I could pen stories, really, and I've always done that. Um, you know, growing up, I wrote scripts, I wrote stories that were parodies of a TV show called The Magic Roundabout. I did song lyrics and poetry and you know, loads of, loads of random stuff like that. Um, so I've always been a writer in that way. And I think what I did is, I mean, um, Stephen Pressfield, he, he talks about it in his book War of Art, this idea of having a shadow career. So it's like you, you're almost doing the stuff you want to do, but it's not quite what you really want to do. So I was a journalist for years. Um, so I did reporting, political reporting, uh, features writing, music writing, art writing, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it wasn't until 2015 when I walked out of a job. I'd, I'd got a job working for someone who um, I'm registered blind, so I've got a, um, a guide dog that I used to get around, and, and my boss didn't let me take my guide dog out for a wee, and that's a that's a line for me. So I, I left, and then I started writing a book, and then I went on some writing workshops and things like that. So it was around then when I started really taking it seriously. I mean, I'd, I'd written about three novels that will never see the light of day and some sci-fi parody stuff. And I didn't really know what I wanted to write. Um, I knew I knew it had to be kind of sci-fi or fantasy, really. And then I wrote my Wasteland books, and they're the ones that seem to hit both, uh, you know, on a artistic level for me and also commercially. So that, that's why I followed and became full-time in... What was it? I realised my last uh, freelance journalism job was in February 2018, so four years. So, yeah, I've been pretty much full-time since then. <clears throat> That's amazing. So um, how does it feel to be able to make a living doing something uh, that you love doing and that is such a passion? I mean, obviously, <laughs> it, it must it feel pretty amazing. It depends on the day. <laughs> Sometimes I think, oh, no, like, like this book I'm on at the moment, Trial of Thieves, you know, I, I usually write quite quickly, and this book is just taking me ages. Um, I started writing it in September, and it's just, it's been such a nightmare. And when you know that your bills and um, everything is tied to you producing things that people will buy, that kind of, it kind of spirals in terms of the pressure. So, it's you know, it's a bit of a double-edged thing in the sense that, yes, I'm in a really, really privileged position to be able to plop stuff out of my imagination. People buy it. And that pays my mortgage and my bills. That's that's amazing. Like that, that's almost a miracle to me. Um, but at the same time, there's also this because it is 
it's kind of been tainted by business, let's say, and commerce. Like, it also adds a bit of pressure and takes a bit away from the art side, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I totally, <clears throat> I totally understand. Um, and Trial of Thieves is the second book in the, um, in the Dawn of Assassin series, um, which is, yeah. is coming out, uh, next year, right? Um, basically it's on pre-order now. What I do with pre-orders like that is when it's done, it comes out. So I end up changing the pre-order dates, but I always give myself as much time as I can. Um, but the way it's going at the moment, it might be next year. So who knows? <laughs> yeah. I'm just past the midpoint and it's taken me, uh, well, six months, but I've done, I mean, I've done, I think the problem is, is I've done a couple of book launches and a couple of other, um, like outlining other novels and writing a novella in between. So it's just been really bitty and yeah, it's, it's not been the best project to do, but I'm sure once it's done, I'll feel great about it. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, so I have a segment on this show where obviously, um, I would like you to tell our community because we do get uh, quite a large listenership on the podcast. Um, a little bit about your world building and uh, I guess the series that people can jump into and how they all relate. So um, I keep going back to the Ravenglass Chronicles because uh, it's a series of, of novellas, but there are so many of them. Um, tell us about that series um, a little bit like what people can uh, look forward to by jumping into it and taking that plunge and binging uh, through all those novellas uh, and also if and how they tie into the other work that you're doing. Yeah. Um, well, the, the Ravenglass Chronicles was basically a, a kind of experiment. Um, I wanted to do a series that was inspired by the tarot. So the tarot cards, the major arcana of the tarot, each of the books is a title of the cards. So it starts off with the magician, goes all the way through to the world. And then because the fool is zero that is the book zero that's like the prequel novella thing that you get when you sign up on the mailing list um so the ravenglass chronicles basically follows the story of a princess she's a bit of a brat she's she's a bit whiny to start with um but she has to go through a journey to become um she kind of has a magical awakening she's uh flees a arranged marriage and ends up having to go through a series of trials let's say um to become a empress so she has to be kind of it's, it's a coming of age story you know it's like it's she grows up along the book and i think she becomes like a really likable character by the end um you know she gets kind of over her flawed character and meets friends along the way and um there's just a lot in there that is drawn from the tarot for the world building um in terms of you know it's not only the titles like every Every one of these episodes was inspired by what the card means. So I'd kind of come up with a theme for that. And then certain imagery that appears in the cards you'll see in the books. And I drew stuff from, you know, the way the tarot set up, like the elemental elements of the tarot that also comes into the magic system. Um, and then the world is just, it's a world I've been working with building for uh, years. I write, well, basically help my mate do Dungeons and Dragons campaigns like I've never actually done one myself but I write campaigns with him just because it's fun and um I help him with that and one of the kind of story things that I came up with that was based around the world of this um and a lot of that stuff you know with I've got the Ravenglass Chronicles that's finished I'm working on a series at the moment called Ravenglass Legends which is going to be set almost like uh like as a prequel to the Ravenglass Chronicles and Dawn of Assassins is set in the same world, but a few hundred years later. So there's been developments in technology and um, 
it kind of gives you a bit more about the world building, a bit more about the magic, because I don't like to be one of these authors who um, tells you exactly what's going on with the magic system. So it's something you've got to kind of piece together as a reader, like a puzzle, which I think is fun. That's awesome. So, um, yeah, so it's all set in the same world, which is definitely helpful to people that want to get into it. Um, And of course, there's there's a lot of material to jump into, which is really cool. Um, One of the questions that I, I... I ask everybody because this is something that um, I'm very guilty of. And I think that writing, uh, you know, they say write what you know. Um, And I definitely know myself more than I know anything else. So I tend to write from what I would say would be a semi-narcissistic point of view where, you know, my main characters are generally kind of avatars of myself. Um, The, you know, female MCs are, are often based on my wife and, you know, people in my life. Is this something that you do? Do you bring yourself and, and the people in your personal life into your characterizations at all? And, and if so, what are some examples of where you would do that in your work? Um, I, I bet I can't, I bet I do. I bet I do. And um, there's certain characters who, they might not be based on particular people, but they're based on maybe several people smashed together. Um like some sometimes there's quirks that people do or little uh, personality quirks where I think why why do you act like that why do you do that and then that kind of makes it into my story. Um, some of the characters I just have as in jokes between me and my wife. So mm. um, you know there's there's stuff like that where it, there's little references that maybe only my friends will get when they read it. Um, but um, I'll give you an example. So um, there's a character called On With in the Dawn of Assassins series, and what happens is, is, is that is something I'll be trying to get my wife's attention, and she'll be going, "I'm on with, I'm on with." She's, you know, she's doing something, um, you know, she's carrying a washing basket or something. So, so I just decided to have a, a character called On With just to troll my wife. So, <laughs> and she always reminds me of that because she's also, uh, you know, she's a professionally trained editor, so she edits all my work as well. So that's good. Any characters that you've written um, that you really um, find particularly challenging or you just, you know, you know that they're important to the story and you kind of started writing them and you kind of like what they do, but you sort of struggle with writing them because they're just a pain. Um, I tend to find that I, I don't write characters necessarily like that. I mean, I did a two books. There were game lit books and they were also about disability. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that I'm, I'm registered blind. So I've got, five percent vision in my right eye and my left eye is shot um so i did this book called blind gambit and the follow-up and the these books are split between the game world and the real world and in the real world the main character brian he's he's gone blind um one of the things in the story is he does have a thing that allows him to see within virtual worlds um but i wanted to write a, a realistic story about someone dealing with going blind so that was that was really hard that was really raw um, I had so much resistance on that book because of the kind of emotion, you know, it, was, it wasn't me, that character, but a lot of the emotional resonances and a lot of the uh, views on things like disability were, were very real and, and very honest. And uh, it was definitely the hardest character to write. Um, it's also the book that sells the least. So I don't know what that says about me. So what is your writing? I, I'm just curious and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm more... Um, I'm just out of interest because um, being like you said registered blind with only five percent vision, 
uh, in one eye. Um, do you like, do you physically write? Do you dictate? Like, how does your, uh, writing process work? Um, it depends. I mean, I can see my, the way I've got my monitor set up. I mean, it's, it's a big monitor and I have it in, so it's basically a black background with white text and it's usually like size 18, low resolution. Um, I've got a thing called zoom text as well, which, uh, helps me navigate. Um, now I, I kind of mix it up. I prefer to type. But I also dictate as well, uh, mainly to avoid eye strain. So today I've been dictating and yeah, I've been dictating most of the day. Um, that's just because I was getting eye strain over the last few days. So it, it, I kind of switch between them. Um, and then I'll go over them on, on the screen and then I use the kind of robot voice thing to make sure that it all sounds right. Cause that's, that's something that's really important when, when I'm going through my boxes. I don't want any echoes and I don't want it to sound like a nursery rhyme and I want there to be a kind of flow to the prose, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it totally does. Um, I've tried to dictate. Um, <clears throat> I wrote uh, a sample chapter in one of my books in dictation and it's challenging because, you know, it's you're dealing with phonetic sounds and it, it, it's a it's a computer and it can only pull so much accurately. Um, and I find that I was I was making a lot of uh corrections so um it's i know that a lot of people write their whole especially prolific authors um write like all their books that way and i think that's really commendable that they are able to do it yeah well i i I track things like word counts and stuff and i worked out that whichever way i do it, it neither way is quicker for me um so yeah there is a lot of repairing let's say when you dictate um but it's also a good way to get the story out your head and just to as I say, avoid the eye strain stuff. So I think it's probably just different for me because I'm, you know, dealing with whatever I'm dealing with. So yeah, no, that's very cool. Um, so I wanted to just ask you. I know you mentioned D D, which is obviously um, a, a relatively common one, uh, common influence when it comes to uh, fantasy writing. I hear it all the time. I've never actually played. It was I was uh, it, what there there were you know different scenes when I was in high school that that would have. Uh, where I would have jumped into something like that then, but I was heavily into uh, music and bands and uh, it was a very different, at that time they were very different scenes. And I think now and, and later they, they maybe overlapped a little bit more. Um, but what are some of the other sort of media influences, you know, from, you know, TV, movies, other books, gaming, even music that um, have inspired your writing? Uh, music, definitely. Yeah. Um I I think I'm what you'd describe as a music geek. I'll, I just love music. I'm always listening to music. I listen to music when I write. Um, I was always into bands, always playing music growing up. Um, I I just think that there's so there's something you can't get with writing with music, which is that kind of uh, physical immediate reaction, that emotional response. And so yeah, I mean, what kind of stuff do I listen to? I mean, it's I grew up basically listening to all the kind of Seattle grunge kind of stuff right. and and a bit of a obscure scene called Shoegaze. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. I absolutely have. <laughs> yeah, so bands like My Bloody Valentine and uh, that kind of thing, which is basically, I, I like noise. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's noisy and it's dreamy at the same time. And um, that kind of state... Uh, there's an album called Loveless by Moby Valentine and, and that kind of state really inspired the um, 
the Shadow Realm that I've got in my Dawn of, Dawn of Assassin series, because um, I wanted to get that like weird, the feeling that you get just as you're falling off to sleep and the sound goes a bit funny. I don't know if that's just me who experiences that, um, but it's like a slight drifting, a slight kind of disappearance of reality. Um, so I've been trying to capture that in writing, and that's that's been interesting. Um, what else? Yeah, I mean, I mean, like in terms of TV and things like that, I've never been one for watching that much TV. I've always found books more engaging and more interesting, especially audio books. Um, I mean, I've all I'm, I think I read about 120 books last year. Wow. Most of them were a mixture of kind of fantasy and non-fiction, boring business books and things like that. Um, so. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mentioned Terry Pratchett, you know, I'm obviously a big fan of his. Um, and then there's authors like Robin Hobb. I reread her, um, what was it called? Farseer trilogy recently. And I think that's, that's one of the series that kind of really got me to think differently about fantasy because I always had it in my head that it was, you know, the, um, I don't know, the, the, the kind of stereotypes of thus, Gallagher and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was now this was character driven stuff and that really appealed to me. Um, so I remember loving that as a kid and then, yeah, revisiting it recently. Yeah, brilliant. Um, so stuff like that. Um, I mean, character, what is it? Authors like Scott Lynch as well. Really like his stuff. Michael J. Sullivan, uh, Brent Weeks. Um, uh, so yeah, you probably see all those influencing my stuff. <laughs> You've just named almost uh, all of my favorite fantasy authors. Um, yeah, no, I love, um, I'm a big fan of Robin Hobb's work. I think her, one of the most amazing things about her is her prose is just absolutely stunning and, um, it reads so beautifully. Um, yeah. I'm also a big fan of Ellie Modisett, um, who I've actually gotten to know quite well. I've interviewed Robin as well, um, which was really cool. It was very cool to be able to, uh, to talk to her and get some insight because she's, she's, you know, I'd say she's a legend in the in, in the um, in the genre. So yeah, definitely. And um, wanted to just get back to this before I uh, shift gears. So as far as shoegaze, because you mentioned that, and you know, I went through obviously uh, phases of uh, being hardcore into the entire like I guess I don't want to say just Seattle grunge scene, but alt alt rock music and mm. you know all of it from from everywhere like you know Pearl Jam, Smashing Pumpkins. Etc. Um, would bands like the Charlatans be considered shoegaze? No, they, they'd be right. We we have, I don't know if you get the name in the US, but we had a scene called Baggy. They they would be Baggy, so it'd be the same scene as like the Stone Roses, Stone uh, Roses, Happy, yeah, Happy Mondays, Charlatans, um, early Blur stuff. Uh, yeah, that was like my my big like I the second band I was in. I remember because we were together 25 years ago, right around the time. I met my wife and one of the first things I did was drag her out to see one of our shows. And I remember we were so obsessed with that scene, specifically Oasis. It was right around the time that Be Here Now came out, their 1997 album. And um, we had replicated all of the the amps, Marshall stacks and everything exactly the same way. Uh, I went up on stage wearing sunglasses and a Mandarin collar shirt and shaking a tambourine. And all our songs sounded exactly like Oasis. And we did an Oasis cover. And I remember telling my wife, who said to me, you know, you guys were good, but a little bit derivative of Oasis. And I said, really? <laughs> I think we sound totally original. Yeah, I, I had the same thing. Like my story about getting into, uh, shoot, well, into My Bloody Valentine was actually 
me thinking I'll come up with an original sound on, in my own stuff with uh, kind of trying to get the, what was it, like Siamese Dream, Era Smashing Pumpkins with a mixture of Stone Roses and uh, a few influences like that, Sonic Youth. And then someone going, oh, someone's been listening to My Buddy Valentine's, like, never heard of them. And I bought, <laughs> so I bought Loveliest, and I was like, wow, these are great, and I wish I'd done it, and I haven't. <laughs> it's just such a classic, it's a classic indie band move. Um, I think anyone that's ever been in, in an indie band would has a, a story like that. Um, but, uh, so I wanted to, you know, we talked a little bit about the actual writing side. I wanted to shift uh, gears a little bit, because as a self-published author, um, I'm kind of interested in what you found to be the biggest joys so far of the experience, because obviously, um, you know, you have uh, capabilities and luxuries that trad published authors do not have. Uh, and also, I guess, what, what some of the biggest obstacles in the process have been for you so far? In terms, I mean, again, this goes back to the band stuff is uh, I was always in the kind of DIY mindset always into the uh you know indie indie kind of punk scenes where just bands were setting up gigs wherever and um you know recording their own tapes and selling them out of the back of cars and things like that so i always liked that as a as a business model let's say and then when i saw that people were doing really well just basically writing stuff that wasn't having gatekeepers in the way and getting it out to the world and finding an audience and like that, that to me is just the magical part of it is the fact that if you are into some weird, oh well, let's not say weird, let's just say a niche that um, isn't necessarily covered by traditional publishing, there's probably an author out there that will be writing exactly that stuff. And that's brilliant. I think that's really empowering. Um, I also think that historically we have seen that tra- tra- I'm not going to call them traditional publishers. I'm going to call them corporate publishers. Corporate publishers have, in the past, um, spent a lot of time kind of promoting certain authors who maybe fit a certain mould. And today, that doesn't matter. All those kind of structural issues, such as racism, ableism, whatever you want to call it, um, they're gone because we have the power now. So we can write what we want to who we want, find the readers we want, and that's really empowering. So um, negatives, I, I think just the only negatives really on it is the fact that you have to do it all yourself or you've got to outsource and pay someone to do it. But that control is, to me, it's, it's fantastic. So, yeah, and empowering right. in, in a very positive way. And, of course, like, for authors that are, you know, putting out anywhere between, like, you know, 10 and 15 novels every year to two years, that traditional or corporate model uh, would never work for them. No. Or they'd, or they'd just put them out under a series of pen names and it'd be fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've just, I've heard so many stories about, you know, author friends of mine that haven't, that, you know, may have had a, um, a deal with a, with a traditional publishing company and then been dropped and have an agent shopping work around for them. And they haven't put a book out in like eight to 10 years because they're waiting on that kind of like gold mine lucrative trad deal. And they're sitting on, you know, manuscripts and manuscripts of completed work and their people are forgetting about them it's, and it's sad because they could be out there publishing them making money and then have the corporate publishers come to them so that's what i've said i've i've, I've like you know when i've spoken to them i've said like look 
yes, there is somewhat of a stigma with self-publishing that somehow the books are going to be of, an, of a subpar level because anyone is able to put books out or a subpar editing level because people don't want to spend the money on editing. But the truth is that's re- often not true. And there are also really, really amazing uh, small presses that actually uh, work really hard for their authors and make sure that these things are done. There's also a lot of vanity presses, but there's, mm. you know, you need to know where to look. Um, yeah. But, you know, to, so if you if it's not about, if you don't want to do the self-publishing thing, there are other options besides, you know, waiting 10 years to get that, that. Yeah. Wait, quote, waiting for permission from a gatekeeper when the walls have already been kicked down, it seems a bit daft. <laughs> no. um, for, for me, I, I, I see that attitude towards self-publishing. I mean, to me, that just strikes me as PR spin from the corporate publishers, because um, if you look at a platform like YouTube, you don't get people saying, I'm not going to go on YouTube because there's loads of rubbish videos on there. Um, you don't get people not eating at a uh, independent cafe because, you know, it's not a mainstream uh, corporate chain restaurant. Um, you know, you don't get people saying, oh, I'm not going to read this blog post because it's not put out there by a mainstream news organization, for example. So it's definitely like the last bastion of this weird 20th century cultural snobbery that I hope just, you know, that we as indies can uh, get rid of. Right. Now, um, as an indie writer, how do you feel about, uh, you know, reader interaction and, and, you know, networking and stuff? And what what's your favorite or I guess your preferred method of um having readers and fans uh network with you and get in touch um i am quite reclusive and i've only just recently kind of stick my toes into social media um so it's all been my newsletter that's where i've been interacting with readers um that's that's it i am starting to put video output out there on on instagram and things like that um i have been doing a month now sorry weekly podcast since uh what is it october 2017 so i've been recording my weekly updates and i haven't missed an episode so 200 odd episodes of that um and yeah my i'm I'm now on tiktok which makes me feel really old when i go on there because i don't know what's going on but my wife is running my tiktok so she's basically coming up to me badgering me when i'm doing my work and uh we're having a little back and forth and then she she does something with it adds captions and i don't know um but yeah it's it's one of those things where i used to do twitter and things like that and and i just found it a it was rubbish for my mental health because twitter is just the toxic waste dump of humanity um and also because oh, i track stuff i realized actually this isn't leading to any sales what is leading to sales is me writing the next book and me interacting with people on my newsletter and getting people on the newsletter. So, yeah, it was just a, a tracking, counting the stuff and working out where stuff was, uh, stuff made sense, let's say. Yeah, I have, um, a good author friend who, um, is doing really well on TikTok. Like she's selling lots of books and her, her views are huge. Like she, like some of her videos have gone like semi-viral. Um, yeah. and I've talked to her about it because I know that it's, it's, you know, obviously it's, a source that a lot of people are using and there's definitely a book marketing angle there. Uh, and she's told me that, it, that really it's, it's once you get into it, you have to commit. Like she mm. does like three to four videos a day and she says it's, it's absolutely exhausting. And you kind of have to work that algorithm and really get it. If you want to get those views. I remember I did one TikTok video and I got my daughter, I think it was 
probably seven going on eight at the time, but she's really good with stuff like this. And she said she wanted to direct me in this video. And it was just <laughs> a video advertising uh, my paper, like my uh, cider and ale series, the paperbacks. So I would like put smash one book on the table and it would turn to the second one. Then I would smash the second one, turn to the third one. And then when I would smash the third one, all of a sudden it turned to me holding my French bulldog. And okay. <laughs> it was, it was a cute video. Yeah. Um, I was exhausted. I never wanted to do another video after I did it. Um, and, uh, I think I got like maybe 94 views or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's good. Is <laughs> Yeah. It's, um, I think this is the trouble is with a lot of social media things is you, you're building on someone else's platform. And as we saw with the Facebook pages a few years ago, it's like people who had 30,000 reach per post are now getting like, 10 reach per post so it's just it, you're building on someone else's whims and and that's not necessarily the best thing right um so i wanted to ask you uh you, you, you touched on this a little bit but uh let's look at the uh near future so i guess the next year from now what can can readers expect from you as far as output in the next year um all all being well <laughs> uh all all being equal hopefully well, I say hopefully. I expect to have Trial of Thieves done by the summer. Um, I, I mean, that's hopefully I'll get it done within the next month, but I've been saying that since October, so who knows. Um, so I want Trial of Thieves done. I want the third book in that series done, which is called Crucible of Shadows. Um, I've also got a, I'm basically sitting on the first draft of another novel and a completed novella. So this is going to be a series called Ravenglass Legends. Um, now, I am, by the look of it, I'm going to be doing these as novels as well, rather than novellas. Um, but I keep getting drawn back to Cat uh, in the Ravenglass Chronicles. Like, there's a little voice in my head saying, oh, you should do all the minor cards as well. So that'd be an extra 80-something <laughs> episodes. So I don't know. No, wouldn't, no 40-odd episodes that'd be, yeah. Yeah, but it, yeah, that'd probably be too much. Um, but yeah, so I've definitely got at least a, no- a novel and a novella that will be out by the end of the year. And hopefully uh, two novels as well. So, but we'll, we'll just see. It, yeah, I I have ambitions to write a book a month, and I've never got there. So. <laughs> Excellent. Sounds awesome. Um, so I like to kind of end all my interviews with this question because everybody has a different perspective, and I think there are so many authors that are coming out, and you know, it's a bucket list thing for so many people to want to write a book. Um, if you could offer one piece of advice um, to new or um, aspiring writers, what would that be? Story. Focus on story. Story, story, story. Um, you know, your prose can be as lovely as you want, but if you don't have a story, then people won't be interested. Um, and we have seen authors who, let's say, these ones with bondage and billionaires and, um, I don't know, archaeological mysteries, set around the Louvre where the writing isn't that great but the story drags you through and the story is what sells and the story is what engages people um so you know a lot of writing workshops and things like that will get you to focus on things on a sentence level get that as good as you can but focus on story learn structure and then know when to break it because every bit of writing advice you'll hear has been broken several times and broken really well so yeah, just uh, <laughs> focus on story. That's it. Yeah. 
That's interesting that you say that, actually. It's a little, it is a different perspective than, you know, most people will say, oh, work on making things perfect or write, write, write and keep a, keep a, a uh, and don't judge yourself. But that's, it's really interesting. And I agree with you. I, there are, um, you know, I read a lot. Most of the stuff I find I'm reading tends to be indie stuff. And a lot of it is like really, really, um, beautifully written prose. Um, I tend to resonate to that. And occasionally I'll pick up something massive like a massive series that's like selling, you know, mass, mass numbers, like all over the world, globally successful. I don't want to mention any names because I don't want to trash anyone because it's not really, you know, one man's, um, one man's trash is another, another man's treasure. Um, mm. But I'll read it and, and really like the pros will be quite amateur. Um, but like you said, there's something about flipping pages, you know, those books where, you know, the chapters are only one and a half pages long. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But there's something in the story that makes you flip pages and makes you want to keep going. Um, so I think that's really good advice because I think like a lot of the most successful authors that are killing it um, are authors that are, are focused on story first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we all need stories, especially at the moment. So <laughs> Definitely. Um, so, John, where can uh, you mention this a little bit? Like you mentioned your newsletter and stuff, but just so that people could actually uh, that are listening to this uh, can find out more easily and, and effectively. Um, where can people find you online? Yeah. So John Cronshaw.com. So that's J O N C R O N S H A W. Um, I'm also on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube as John Cronshaw author. Um, and you can find John Cronshaw's author diary, wherever you listen to podcasts. Awesome. Well, John, it's been uh, excellent talking to you. Um, some really cool insight. Um, and, you know, best of luck with getting that second novel uh, out. And hopefully, like you said, you'll feel really good about it when it finally does get to the point that you've completed it. And um, also with all your other future releases. Awesome. Thank you, Michael. All right, John. Take care. Take care. This has been Authors in Focus. You can find my satirical fantasy novels on Amazon. Need help finding readers? Connect with me on Facebook in the Fantasy Sci-Fi Focus group or at authorsinfocus at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast at fantasy-focus.com and where your favorite podcasts are hosted. <laughs>